I have two main hopes for today. Um, the first is that if you've had any experience, firsthand experience, with an abortion, I pray that you find the mercy and the grace and the compassion of Jesus, that it would be the resounding note that echoes in the corridors of your heart and your mind this morning. And second, particularly if you are a Christian, I pray that you would sense a call to serve the most vulnerable among us, the unborn, but also the mothers, the fathers, and the families who surround them. We might be very uncomfortable addressing this topic, but I ask that we humble ourselves this morning and hear what God would have to say to us, even if it's uncomfortable. So let me start with the history of the sanctity of human life Sunday. It's not a religious observance, and it's actually not a creation of any particular evangelical denomination. It's a national observance, which began with Proclamation 5147 from President Ronald Reagan on January 13, 1984. And I want to read some of that right now. Here's Reagan's words. The values and freedoms we cherish as Americans rest on our fundamental commitment to the sanctity of human life. The first of the unalienable rights affirmed by our Declaration of Independence is a right to life itself, a right the Declaration states has been endowed by our Creator on all human beings, whether young or old, weak or strong, healthy or handicapped. Since 1973, however, more than 15 million unborn children have been or have died in legalized abortions a tragedy of stunning dimensions that stands in sad contrast to our belief that each life is sacred. Abortion has denied these children the first and most basic of human rights, and we are infinitely poorer for their loss. We have been given the precious gift of human life, made more precious still by our births in, or pilgrimages to, a land of freedom. It's fitting then that on the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade, that struck down state anti-abortion laws, we reflect anew on these blessings and on our corresponding responsibility to guard with care the lives and freedoms of even the weakest of our fellow human beings. You can almost hear in Reagan's words the echoing of Genesis 1 and 2, that all people were made in God's image and likeness. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Every human being, therefore, carries with himself or herself inherent worth and inherent dignity. We reflect God's glory in a way that the rest of creation does not. And therefore, the taking of human life is not mainly or primarily an affront against each other, but against the God who made us in his image. And the decision handed down in Roe v. Wade in 1973 has made it legal to kill nearly 59 million children to date. And I think if 59 million people from any other group had been systematically eliminated over a 44-year period, it would be headline news every day. So by the sheer numbers, this is the greatest tragedy in our time, perhaps history. I can't really grasp the vastness of it. I mean, 59 million people is three times the state of New York. 
And I think because of this, it's the most important justice issue for us today, whether or not people would acknowledge that. And on top of that, it's a mission issue for the church. And we know this for many reasons biblically, not least of which are the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 12 and 14. Just listen. You don't have to open it up. It's very short. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. You know the first part is the golden rule, and the principle is spoken at different times and in different contexts in the Gospels, so much so that there's a wide range of application. In other contexts, Jesus puts it like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And throughout the centuries, there have been other forms of the golden rule, but interestingly enough, they're always in the negative. Confucius, for example, said, don't do to others what you would not wish would be done to yourself. So there's a difference. Do you see the difference? One says, don't make people The other one says, do everything you can to help them flourish. Confucius said, don't hurt people. At the very least, would you just stand back? Don't bother them. Jesus says, do people right. Give what is due them as image bearers of God. You might ask, what does a flourishing life look like? Be sure they have that quality of life. And Jesus tells us this is the law and the prophets, meaning do unto others what you wish sums up the biblical love ethic for God's people. Yet we know that God's people aren't the only ones commanded to live this way. All people are made in God's image. All people have God's law written on their hearts. And in fact, in the Old Testament, God would hold other nations accountable for what they did, even if they didn't have access to God's law and God's prophets. Jesus tells us, doing unto others what you would want is the narrow way. There's not a lot of people living this way read this passage this morning with my daughters, and I said, this is not the popular way to live, but it's the way that leads to life and flourishing. The other way is wide. It's easy. Lots of people live in that way, and it leads to destruction. Now, what's required of us, just generally, in order to do to others what we would want to be done to us? First, you have to see them You have to see their situation for what it is. What's their environment? What obstacles do they face? What do they need physically, emotionally, spiritually to flourish? Second, we have to consider what best course of action we would pursue if we were in their shoes. You have all these options. What do they need? What would I want if I was in your shoes? And then there's a third step. You do it. You just do it. Jesus' words are not meant to be analyzed. 
They're not even meant, meant to be commented upon, which is weird because I'm preaching a sermon. They're, they're not, that's not what they're meant for. They're meant to be obeyed. They're meant to be done. So you figure out the situation, what would you want, and then you do it. And so this eliminates hopelessly evaluating and endlessly analyzing hundreds of different scenarios in all of your situations. What's my job? What do you need? What would I want you to do? And then go do it. So if you were an unborn child, what would you want to be done for you? That's the question that faces us. So when we see abortion through the lens of the golden rule, the rubber meets the road. He's not talking mainly or only to first century Jews, ancient Israel, Babylon, Egypt. He's talking to me. And he's talking to you. And we become undone. And hopefully, as Ronald Reagan said, we, are infinite, we realize we're infinitely poorer for the loss of these precious ones. And we also realize that we have not kept this golden rule. And not just in the arena of unborn children. Nobody keeps this. Every time. So let me address two distinct groups looking through the lens of this text. The first is moms and dads or anyone else who's had first-hand experience with abortion. You might think, how could God forgive me for what I've done? Jesus' words probably haunt you in a way that I can't imagine. They probably, other than what Jesus went through on the cross, you might be going through the hardest thing that any human on this earth has to go through. I can't imagine. These words of Jesus might sadden you, they might anger you, they might even lead you to feel guilty or ashamed. But they will not crush you. And they weren't meant for that. Let me tell you why. A few minutes before Jesus said this, in Matthew 5, 17, he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to what? Fulfill them. This means that everything God required of humanity, Jesus accomplished. Nobody else has done that. We cannot say that we've always done to others what we would want them to do to ourselves. But do you know who can? Jesus can. He can say that. Blows my mind that he can say that. You might confess that you did not do to your unborn child what you would have wanted. But Jesus can. He has fulfilled the law on your behalf so that when you trust in him, your heavenly father looks down at you and he scoops you up into his loving embrace. And do you know what he says to you? My daughter, my son, I love you. I forgive you. You're innocent. You're pure. You're clean. I don't see that. This is abundant grace that pardons and cleanses within, as the old hymn says. The sin of abortion is not beyond the scope of this grace. 
you will not be punished if you trust in Jesus because Jesus was punished for you. I don't know if you've ever thought of it that way, but that's what happened on that cross. He was punished for you. And you get grace. And you get forgiveness. And you get life. And, and not only that, but everything that Jesus did, you get credit for. So that when he looks at you, when the Father looks at you, what he sees is Jesus' report card. Jesus' performance review. You get credit for that. This is the best news in the whole world. It's good news for everybody. It's good news for everybody in this room. Maybe you haven't confessed or repented of an abortion or been being complicit in one. Jesus is waiting for you too. He said, whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. He said, come to me, all who are weary and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He will abundantly forgive. That's what he does. He forgives, and he pardons, and he cleanses. And he says, my daughter, my son, I love you. Now to everyone else, maybe you haven't played a role in an abortion. What does he say to us? I think that we, wouldn't, we, we often don't want to think about this issue. It's too big. It's too overwhelming. It's too messy. It's too uncomfortable. And yet Jesus is staring me in the face, Matthew 7, Whatever you wish that others would do for you, James, do also for them. This is the law and the prophets. The same abundant grace that pardons and cleanses within also empowers us to obey. Not perfectly, not all the time, but if grace does not empower us to obey, then it's not really grace. It's something else. When we have the secure love of the Father... When we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's the first commandment, we're freed from self-preservation and self-protection to help others flourish at great cost to myself, at great cost to yourself. That's the second commandment. And Jesus is talking about doing justice, not in the legal sense. What is justice? It's giving others their due. It's balancing the scales so that they have when they have had not. But our eyes need to be open to the weight of the issue, or it won't do much, right? 59 million. Who will speak for them? Who will fight for them? Who will do them justice? Who will be there for the moms who've endured the pain in the aftermath, as, as Liz said? Who will be there for the dads, for the grandmas and grandpas? Whatever you wish that others would do for you, do also for the unborn. Jesus, help us. So seeking justice for the unborn, helping them flourish, will cost us. Right? Justice requires that we put ourselves at a disadvantage so that others might have an advantage. Do you, do you understand that? So I have to put myself as a disadvantage if I'm going to do justice. That's the only way justice can happen, and we know that because Jesus did that, right? The ultimate disadvantage. He did it for us. As a way to facilitate this, we have that little sheet of paper in your bulletin that you've probably seen already as ways of getting involved, ways of learning, how can I put myself at a disadvantage? 
for others. Let me comment about a few ways. You've already heard about some of them. Prayer. You can start by praying. Pray for the unborn. Pray for mothers, for fathers, for doctors, for nurses. Pray for those who confess Christ and yet want to maintain a facade of external holiness so that so much so that they unwittingly shame women inside the church to feeling like their only option is an abortion. Right? That's the dirty little secret in the evangelical church. Right? We're so worried about seeing an unwed mother that we shame them. Pray for those people. You might be one of those people. Pray for the women in crisis, crisis pregnancies. Pray for the couples who maybe are married. They don't know if they can afford another child. Pray that the works of darkness in abortion clinics would be exposed. You know, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And when I pray for this, I feel that I'm on the front lines of darkness. I don't cry a lot when I pray. I do when I pray about this. Don't underestimate praying. Pray, pray, pray. You heard about Alpha, 40 Days of Life. Here's the third one. Legislation. You know, Jesus said some outlandishly political things, but he was never partisan. We have the privilege of joining him. We don't have to be partisan. I really care less about partisan politics. But I do care about being faithful to the scriptures and pursuing justice and working with anyone who desires to preserve life. That is the job of a just government, right? To protect and preserve life. And in a democratic republic, we have the privilege of having a voice to support and advocate for laws that protect life, not take life. And so who among us, who, who among you, would rise up and say, go to Albany, D.C., fight for life? You might say, well, we should not legislate morality. Friend, we all do that to some extent. We all legislate morality. It's just a matter of where are you going to draw the lines. Whatever you wish others to do to you, do also for them. And then the last one. You know my heart on this. One of the greatest ways to do to others what you would wish to do for yourself in this case is to become a foster parent or adopt. If we're truly pro-life, we'll be pro-fostering and pro-adoption. And I don't just mean it in the sense that we say, oh, that's so great. Of course. Who, who hates fostering and adoption? But if we give up the fight after an abortion is prevented, what happens is we communicate that we don't actually care about the child and the mother and the father. As my wife has said, and statistics prove it's not enough to save children from abortions because the ones that are saved are typically at risk for abuse and neglect later in childhood. And the reality is that you are the best candidates to be foster parents and adopt because you know what it's like. You've all been adopted by God if you trust in Jesus. Not everyone has to foster or adopt, but could, could you imagine? 
Could you imagine a whole network or a whole church of people who say, this isn't your only option. We're here for you. We'll adopt your baby. You can live with us. We'll pay for your medical bills. We'll go to the doctor with you. We'll hold your hand. We'll cry with you. We'll laugh with you. We'll pull out your hair with you when your baby's six or 16. Could you imagine saying, we will make sure one way or another that your child flourishes. Not, I'm just going to make sure nothing bad happens, but I am going to lay down my life so that your child and you flourish. And above all, what we need most is spiritual, eternal flourishing. We need to be rescued, the judgment that's waiting, apart from God's grace. We could save all the babies. We could change all the laws. We could mentor all the moms. But if we don't share the greatest news in the world, ultimately we don't do people justice, right? We do them a tragic injustice. But we don't have to choose between the two, thankfully. We don't have to be in the liberal Christian camp or the conservative Christian camp. We pursue people's temporal flourishing now, doing them justice and telling them Jesus came to die for sinners, all kinds of sinners, abortion committing sinners, and the people who turn their noses up at those who commit abortions. He died for all of them, everybody here. That's the best news in the world. We get to tell people grace is abundantly available to all who would come to Jesus. And then he empowers us by that same grace to go do unto others as we would want done to ourselves. So we know that this might be heavy. We know this might be hard. Liz and Sue are in the offices up front, or they will be to pray with anyone who wants to pray in private. If you're a dude and you want to pray with me, I'll be up here. And you can go at any time if you want. But remember what I, what I started with, two hopes. One, if this is something you have personal experience with, there is abundant grace that pardons and cleanses within. And if you have no experience of this, don't think it's too big or too overwhelming. But what would Jesus have you to do for the biggest justice issue in our day, perhaps in the history of the world? Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also for the unborn. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, your son has done for us what we did not deserve. He gave us eternal flourishing through his life and through his death and through his resurrection. And so I pray for the women and men here today who have felt the guilt and sting of abortion. Would it be swallowed up in your tender mercy? Would they hear Jesus' words, whoever comes to me, I will by no means cast out. And may your people rise to the occasion to do for the unborn and their mothers and their fathers and all those who surround them what we would want done for us if we were in any of their shoes. 
May your grace pardon our guilt, declare us innocent, and empower us to fight for the most vulnerable among us. You are able to do it, Father. You are only able to do it. So we stand here with fear and trembling, knowing that this is bigger than we can deal with, and also knowing that even our own sense of guilt and shame is bigger than we can deal with. And you have provided not formulas, not organizations, uh, but a person. You've given us your own son, your own son, your only son, whom you love. You gave him up for us all. How will you not also with him graciously give us all things? We trust in him today. May we remember your mercy and your grace, your demands, your gracious demands. You're a good and wise king, O Lord. And we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.